Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to turn to John 15. John 15, that's where our text will be today. Perhaps one of the most universal human experiences is the feeling of buyer's remorse. We all know what it's like to purchase something, only later to regret that purchase. Maybe you've purchased a house before, only later to find out there was termite damage in the basement. Maybe you've, you've uh, bought a shirt at the store recently, and later you get home and your wife tells you there's a hole in it. Not talking from experience. But the, we get this feeling of buyer's remorse in, in plenty of different ways. Uh, you buy a car, you have a hum later on, you try, find out you have a transmission issue. And we see this sometimes in personal relationships, where maybe a relationship with a significant other or a spouse, and it's only deep into the relationship that we find out serious issues that we didn't know at first. Maybe that promising career that you looked forward to wasn't what you hoped for. That job was filled with nothing but trial and disappointment. Well, whether you call it, whether you call it buyer's remorse or something else, I want to ask you, what specifically is so frustrating about these circumstances? What is it that we find just, just, it just bugs us so much? Well, I would, I would argue that the thing that bothers us most is that we did not have full information. You didn't have full information. You wouldn't have bought that house if you knew about the termite damage, right? You wouldn't have bought that car if you knew about the transmission issue. And you definitely wouldn't have taken that job if you knew about the hours that it would require. The, the simple point is you feel like you've been fooled, like you've been duped, like maybe somebody pulled the wool over your eyes. You feel like you weren't warned of the trouble ahead. Well, friends, brothers and sisters, Emmanuel Church, this is not the experience of those who follow Christ. Or rather, it's not the experience of those who pay attention to Christ's teaching. Our Lord gives us solemn warnings of the consequences of being his disciples. It is true, it's certainly true that saints experience a peace that surpasses understanding. If you're a Christian, you know what that's like. It's true that, that those who come to Christ find rest in him. And it's true that the Lord is our shepherd who leads us beside still waters. Yet, yet, Christians are called to life that isn't easy. Surely every saint has enlisted into the army of the Lamb. And we are called to take up our cross daily. Christians experience affliction, weariness, trial, and temptation. And in the case of our text today, we learn that Christians are to experience and are to expect hatred from the world. In fact, our text today comes right after Christ's teaching on the place of love in the lives of his followers. Surely, as Christians are to expect and have lives marked by love for one another as they abide in Christ's love, they can also expect hatred from the world. So with this in mind, would you read with me John 15, 18 through 16, 4. If the world hates you, Know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. 
Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I've said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Would you pray with me? Father, it is our sincere desire that you be pleased by the preaching of your word. So, Father, I ask you that you would give me clarity of thought and speech and that you would remove distraction in this hour. Father, we need to hear you from your word. We need to internalize the words of our Savior. We thank you that we can approach you, not on our own merits, but on the merits of Christ and through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So we pray in this moment that your spirit would apply your word Once again, please remove distraction and make Christ more precious to us than ever. We love you and pray in our Lord Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, our text today uh, is both deeply sobering and deeply encouraging to believers as well. And the main idea of my message today is that disciples of Christ, disciples of Christ will be hated because of their union with Christ. But disciples of Christ are prepared and will persevere because of their union with Christ. Let me say that again, that's a mouthful. Disciples of Christ, they will be hated because of their union with Christ, but disciples of Christ are prepared and will persevere because of their union with Christ. My message has four parts this morning, and they each are related to the place of opposition in the believer's life. So the first point will be the reality of opposition, The second will be the reason for opposition. The third will be the help in opposition. And fourth will be the hope in opposition. So the reality, the reason, the help, and the hope. Consider first with me the reality of opposition. Now, I'm using the word opposition. Uh, We might think of opposition from an opponent. Maybe something like you have an opponent in a chess match or in a football game. You might think of one political party that opposes another political party. I know that takes a lot of imagination, but just imagine one political party opposing another political party. Well, friends, the opposition in our text is far more intense than what I'm talking about there. In fact, the opposition in our text is referred to as hatred. The Greek word for hatred is the word from which we derive our word misery. So the idea in our text is is of miserable hatred and despising that of violent opposition. Jesus talks of killing and, and violent opposition to his disciples. And what he wants them to understand is that just as they should expect deep and abiding love from Jesus and his disciples, they will also experience deep and abiding hatred as well. But from whom? From whom does Jesus want us to expect and his disciples to expect hatred? Well, Jesus wants his disciples to expect hatred from the world. It's not a tedious question for us to ask, who is the world? 
Uh, is, is it all the countries of the world? Is it all the places in the world? Is it all the people in the world? And perhaps a better question would be, at, be to ask, what is the world in John's gospel? Well, if, if you remember th- throughout our teaching in John's gospel, the world, as John presents it, is the creative, created order in active rebellion against God. It's the created order in active rebellion against God. And it's vital that we understand this. It's vital that we understand this because every person who has not confessed Christ as Lord is in active rebellion against him. That's every single person that is not a Christian, that has not believed and put their faith in Jesus, is in active rebellion against God. And it's vital that we understand this. It's not just that hateful hedonist in California that we've never met or talked to. It's not just that Islamic terrorist in the Middle East that's in active rebellion. No, no, no. It's that, it's that friendly neighbor that's unbelieving that you pass and wave every single day on your way home from work. It's that courteous coworker. It's that unregenerate family member. All of these, the Bible teaches us, are among the world. And they're among those who are in active rebellion against Christ and his gospel. And until the Spirit removes the blindness of unbelief and a person trusts in Christ, he or she is at enmity with God and the world collectively is in fierce opposition to Christ and his gospel. Jesus says in 16 verse 4, he he tells his disciples why he's telling them about the world's hatred. Like Jesus isn't just being a downer here. He he explains why he's telling them and warning them of this hatred. He says in verse 4 of chapter 16, he says, but I've said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. You see, Jesus is referring to the hour of persecution, where hatred is most, most fully realized. But you don't have to be a Christian very long to understand that Christian people, they experience hatred and opposition in a spectrum of ways. We experience it all over the place. Even in our free society, in America, the world's hatred is seen in a number of ways. See how many people want to be your friend when they realize that you take Jesus at his word. See how many people want to be your friend when they realize that your religion claims that Jesus is the only way to salvation. Those are fighting words. Those are words that invite opposition. But we know that, uh, we know that the world's hatred remains extreme still all over the world. Even by the most conservative statistics, they would tell us that more Christians are being martyred year by year than at any other time period in history. That's a fact. In places like parts of Africa and the Middle East, Christ's words in this text are as painfully relevant as they ever have been. The point is this. The world's hatred for Christians in its various forms, it's not a bug or malfunction of the Christian life. Like, it's, it's not like Jesus didn't account for it. No, brothers and sisters, it's a part of the package. It's, it's in bold in the contract. It comes with the territory of being a Christian. It's an explicit part of the walk with Christ. The opposition of the world, and, uh, opposition of the world to his disciples, to Christ's disciples, is intense and inevitable. And we ought to expect it. And this is why the, the instinct... Uh, among many Christian people to be liked by the world is, is just so confusing to me. It doesn't make sense. We, 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 we so often long for the world and the culture to, to favor us. We long for prominence in the world. 
I recently saw on, on social media a, a picture of Tom Hanks being shared by Christian people. And a picture of Tom Hanks shows, is just, has a quote from him saying, oh, I believe in God. And people are sharing this like it's this great Christian victory. Oh, Tom Hanks believes in God. Whoa! As if that's a statement of faith or, or something like that. Well, why does that impress us? Why is that something that Christian people get excited about? Because we, we long for the world to favor us. Specifically in that case, we want Woody from Toy Story to favor the Christian message. Why, why do we want this? Why is it when, when Larry King interviews an evangelical, we, we all get so excited? Why is it when the New York Times writes a charitable obituary of Billy Graham, we're, we're thrilled? Well, friends, brothers and sisters, the New York Times might care, might have a passing appreciation for Billy Graham, but they hate his gospel. And they hate his Christ. They hate his Lord. We're surprised and discouraged as we face increasing opposition from the culture. We're losing our institutions. We're losing our schools. We're losing our rights. Friends, why is this a surprise? What did Jesus promise us? He told us to expect hatred. He at no point promised or told us to expect favor from the world. Yes, Jesus brought peace, but he also brought a sword. The world's hatred and opposition towards Christian is a reality that is intense and inevitable. And our Lord makes this reality of opposition just abundantly clear throughout the Gospels and specifically our text. But at this point we should ask, why is it that the world is opposed to us? Why is it that we experience opposition? So now consider secondly, secondly with me the reason for opposition. The reality now, the reason. Verse 18 chapter 15. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. Notice first here that disciples of Christ will be hated because of their union with Christ. There are other reasons that for not acting like the world they'll be hated, but our text highlights mostly it's because of their union with Christ. It's because of their association and identity in Christ. They can expect persecution. And notice the simplicity of Jesus' argument here. It says a servant is no greater than his master. How could followers of Christ expect to avoid hatred when Christ was so bitterly hated by the world? You know the definition of insanity? It's doing the same thing and expecting different results. How can we as Christians, little Christ, those who seek to follow Christ in word and action, expect anything different from the world than what Jesus received? Jesus received nothing but hatred from the world. And we see, this, all, we see this, this developing narrative throughout John's gospel. It's interesting. Jesus' ministry in, in John starts out pretty good. In John 2, he, he turns water into wine. He's, he's at a party. There's much rejoicing. He, 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 rece- he has some followers, and people are very happy. And basically from then on out, it's nothing but mounting persecution for Jesus in the gospel of John. We see this all over the place. In John 5, we see the Jews beginning to plot the death of Jesus because he made himself equal with God. 
In John 7, the Pharisees attempt to arrest Jesus. In John 8, after Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am, the Jews pick up stones to throw at him. In John 10, after Jesus said, I and the Father are one, they again try to stone him. And we know at the point of our text today, we're in the upper room, Jesus' hour had come, and he's just moments away from being shamefully murdered on the cross. The prophet Isaiah prophesied well of Christ when he said, he was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Brothers and sisters, Jesus was despised and rejected. He was hated by the world, and he wants his disciples to expect nothing different. If they reject Christ's words, surely they will reject ours. And if they rejected Christ's works, surely they will reject ours. The world's hate for Christ overflows to those who are united to him. But why did they hate Christ? Why did they hate Jesus? Notice, secondly, Christ was hated because of his union with his Father. Christ was hated because of his union with God. Look at verse 22. Jesus says, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. And then verse 24, he says, If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. Jesus says something very interesting here. He says, he says, if he had not come and spoken to the world and done the works that no one else did, then the world would not be guilty of sin. As a Christian, I think these verses can be very confusing and discouraging. Like, like what is Jesus saying here? Is, is Jesus suggesting, is he saying that the world would not have been guilty of sin if he had not come into the world? In other words, is he suggesting that the world was innocent until he performed miracles and, and lived a life before them? Well, I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. We don't have to search the scriptures long to realize that, that this is certainly not Jesus' meaning. Romans 1, for instance, would inform us that even those who have never heard the name of Jesus will still, still stand guilty before a holy God. So what does Jesus mean when he says that the world would not have been guilty of sin? Is he suggesting that the world's guilt is only increased because of his words and works? Think about this. Is he saying just like the more revelation of, of Jesus that people receive, the more they're accountable? Is that what he's saying in this text? Well, friends, though, though I think that idea is true, that, that idea of to whom much is given, much will be, be required, I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. Rather, rather I, I think these verses are a radical statement of Christ's unity with his Father. Follow me here. Jesus is expressing explicit unity with the Father in his message, ministry, and purpose. He's saying something like, look, those who hate me would not be guilty if my words and works were not so obviously from the Father. But because my Father and I are so inextricably united, any rejection of me is a rejection of my Father. And this is an argument Jesus has been making throughout John's Gospel. In John 10, verse 37, he says, he says to the Jews, he says, if I'm not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. What's the implication there? I'm so obviously doing the works of my Father, so you should believe in me. This is why Jesus says in John 12, he says, I've not spoken, the idea of words, I've not spoken on my own authority, 
But the Father who sent me has given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. Friends, the point is this. Jesus said the words and performed the works of his Father in heaven. And his unity with the Father was so abundantly clear that any rejection of Christ was explicit rejection of the Father. Brothers and sisters, the world hates us us because they hated Christ. And they hated Christ because they hated the Father. And as servants, we should know that we are no better than our master. The reason for the world's hatred of us is our union with Christ. By way of application, I just want to ask, this is something you could think about, but, but do you experience opposition? Do you experience any sort of friction with the world? Now, I don't want for a moment to suggest from this text that Christians should seek hatred or opposition from the world. We shouldn't seek out that the world despise us or non-Christians not favor us. But I think it's curious and concerning if we never experience any sort of cost or friction on account of our walk with Christ. And I believe that perhaps the reason why some of us never experience any opposition from the world is we offer nothing to oppose. We offer nothing in our lives or in our words or in actions that's even worth opposing. We offer a vanilla faith to the world. Now, I've had the benefit of working in the business world the last several years, and I love the opportunities that this affords me to rub shoulders with lost people, with non-Christians. I regularly get opportunities for evangelism and to speak the gospel to lost people. But one of the most difficult parts of, of working in a, in a non-Christian workplace is the professing Christians there that obscure the gospel. And they do this in a number of ways. They, they do this by, by preaching a half gospel to people. Uh, they do this by, by preaching something like cheap grace. And they do this by, by presenting inaccurate ideas of, of how salvation works. But the most disturbing thing is when I look at my coworkers' lives. Because I, I look at the lives of professing Christians on one hand, and I, I look at the lives of non-professors on the other side. I look at those who, who profess to know Christ and those who say they don't know Christ, and I see nothing different. They're exactly the same. I see professors and non-professors alike that both lust and ogle after women. I see professors and non-professors alike that both cuss like sailors. And, and I see professors and non-professors alike express the same exact priorities in life. Things like what they hope for for their children one day. The same exact priorities as open unbelievers. Now listen, I, I know that there's, there's common grace in our culture. And I understand that, that Christians have remaining sin, but there's something concerning when there's no discernible difference between the ways we live and the world. There's something concerning when there's no antithesis from the character of our lives and the lives of those around us. So my Christian friend, does does your life give the world anything to oppose? And here, here, don't get me wrong, I, I think we should ask, if the world does oppose us, why do they oppose us? Is it because we're cold? Is it because we're kind of have a dour countenance in the workplace or in, in, in our family get-togethers? Is it because we're just such a killjoy? No. Friends, if the world hates anything about us, let it only be Christ. Let it only be the Lord Jesus. Let it be his words and his works. We're called to be light in the darkness. 
Christians are called to be the most cheerful, joyful, honest, honorable people in the world. We should be agreeable people. We should be winsome. Yet we know that for those who are unbelieving, when they are acquainted with the Jesus of Scripture, they will either hatefully reject him or they will have faith in him and they will be given sight to see the glory of Christ. So friends, the world hates Christians because they hate Christ. And if you experience any opposition from the world, let it be for the sake of Christ and his name. So we see the reality of opposition. We see the reason for opposition. Consider with me thirdly and briefly the help in opposition. The help in opposition. Look at verse 26. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. It may seem odd. Jesus has been warning his disciples of the hatred from the world, the opposition they should expect from the world. And he suddenly dies into this teaching on the Spirit. Uh, and we know that in the upper room and throughout John's gospel, we get a lot of teaching on the Holy Spirit. But we shouldn't think that Jesus just decided randomly, you know, I, I should offer some teaching on the Spirit here. It's, it's not truncated like that. It's, it's not like he's chasing a rabbit hole or a random tangent. Remember what Christ has been telling his disciples here. Remember, remember the situation. He, he, he's saying, look, you men are going to be bitterly hated. You're going to be despised and, and violently opposed for my name's sake. And, and I think if, if you were one of the disciples in this moment, you would have been shaking in your boots. You would have been scared to death. I think it's fair to conclude this from Christ's words in the upper room as well as how the disciples scatter after Jesus is arrested, the disciples were, were desperately fearful of their situation. Think about this. Here the man you've been following, following for three years is talking about leaving you. And now he's telling you you're, you're going to experience intense persecution. He's talking about them being put to death. How would you feel? And add to this the, the ex- expectation that Jesus is levying on his disciples that they're to be his emissaries in the world and proclaim the gospel and have boldness. Jesus is expecting them to proclaim the gospel and the word of God in the world. How would you feel? Friends, I believe the disciples would have felt completely helpless and hopeless. But what does Jesus say? What does Jesus promise? He promises help. He promises help. When the helper comes, he says. Jesus refers to the spirit as the paraclete. That is the one who brings paraclesis. That, that's comfort. That's encouragement. That's help. The spirit is the one who comes alongside and who urges and comforts his disciples. Jesus says the spirit will bear witness about me. The disciples would not be proclaiming in their own strength. As they would bear witness to Christ, the Spirit of God himself would affect the outcome of their witness. The Spirit of God himself. The Spirit of God would convict. The Spirit of God would quicken. The Spirit of God would remove blindness. The Spirit of God would mediate Christ. The Spirit of God would witness about our Lord. Well, friends, though these words have special bearing on the disciples and their immediate context, I believe they apply to all disciples of Christ. This is a promise for the church. The promise of the Spirit is a promise for the church. 
We sang it earlier in our service today, but nearly 500 years ago, Martin Luther penned a mighty fortress. And that last verse, that precious verse, he says, that word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abides still. His kingdom is forever. Emmanuel Church, so long as Jesus tarries, we will be hated. We will be opposed on account of Christ's sake. But we have the Spirit. We have help. We have the Spirit who causes us to proclaim and persevere in strength. So we've considered the reality of opposition, the reason for opposition. The Spirit is our help in opposition. Now consider lastly, our hope in opposition. Our hope. 16 verse 1. Jesus says, I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. We must ask, why has Jesus been telling them all of this, these things? Why has he been warning of the world's hatred? Why has he been warning of, of opposition and of persecution and of even martyrdom? Why is he at length briefing his disciples with the reality of this opposition? Well, remember, we're in the middle of the upper room discourse, right? We're in, we're in Jesus' hour. He's just moments away from his arrest and then subsequent death and resurrection. And this discourse begins in John 13. And, and what does John say about Jesus in John 13 at the beginning? He says, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. In this moment, in John 16, Jesus was filled with intimate, intimate affection and concern for his disciples. And out of the abundance of his love for them, he wants to make clear his aim to preserve them. He wants to make clear his aim that they will persevere through this suffering of hatred. Brothers and sisters, Jesus makes it clear that his warning of the opposition is in order, in order that his disciples would persevere through it. He's not just saying for its own sake. It's in order that they would persevere through the opposition. The warning is a means of preservation. So notice, Christ not only intends that we persevere, but Christ has made arrangement to preserve us. Christ's intention for the perseverance of his saints, it's not a mere pipe dream. It's not just like a fancier feeling like, oh, I hope it works out for these guys that I've been with for a long time. You know, I've invested so much. No, 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 it's, it's much more than that. Listen to the promises that Jesus pledges to his followers. He says, whoever believes in me has eternal life. He says, whoever comes to me finds rest. Whoever drinks of me doesn't thirst. Whoever eats of me never hungers. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. It is the will of the Father that I should not lose nothing of all that the Father has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Whoever is of my fold will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Nothing can snatch you out of Christ's hand if you are in Christ. If our faith is in the Lord, nothing can snatch us out of his hand. He pledges to be with his church until the end of the age. Christ promises to be with us. Be with us always. The Apostle Paul says about Jesus, whoever calls on him will be saved. Says he who begins a good work will bring it to completion. These are all promises. These are all truths about Christ we can take to the bank. He will preserve his saints. 
Again, Jesus will say in the high priestly prayer addressing his father, he says, Holy Father, keep them in your name. While I was with them, I kept them in your name. Brothers and sisters, the high priestly prayer is reflective of Christ's present ministry. He ever lives above for us to intercede. Christ's present ministry is keeping you in the faith. Jesus Christ will sustain you to the end. He has an unstoppable purpose. It's an unstoppable purpose to preserve all those who are his. And our hope through hatred is in the one who preserves us. This is our hope in, uh, it, through hatred. It's in the one whose will cannot be thwarted. He cannot be denied. The warning of opposition flows from Christ's heart, his overwhelming affection and love for us. He will preserve those who are his. Let our hope, Emmanuel Church, be in the one who holds on to us, who will never let us go. He will never leave us nor forsake us. We've learned that disciples of Christ, they they should expect hatred because they're united to our Lord. It's a part of the package. It comes with the territory. But disciples of Christ are prepared and persevere because they are united to Christ. In closing, our our Lord speaks primarily here of of two parties. He he speaks about the Father and the Spirit, but as far as people, he's addressing two parties his followers, his disciples, and the world, those who are unbelieving. And my lost friend, if you're here today, I want you to know we're happy you're here today. You're welcome here. We want you to be here. But we want you to know, too, that if you're not in Christ, if, you're, if your faith is, is not in him, you're counted as among the world. You're counted as among those who are in fierce opposition to Christ and his message. And, and I want you to understand that outside of Jesus, there is no help offered to you. This help of the Spirit that we find comfort in, it's not offered to you outside of Christ. This promise of hope in a Lord and Savior who preserves his disciples to the end, it's not offered to you. It's only in Christ. Friend, you can know this. Christ offers himself to you now. And the blessings of these promises are held to you now in him In Christ, there is hope of glory and life abundant. Would you forsake the world today and turn to Christ? He's ready to receive you, and he'll never cast you out. Will you pray with me? Father, we consider it a blessing to hear from your word. Lord, we thank you that we have a savior who is holding on to us. We thank you that we have a savior that not only saves us from our desperate state of sin, but Lord, he preserves us until the end. Lord, we pray in this hour that your word would convict of sin. Lord, that, that sinners would turn to you. And Lord, we pray in this hour that your word and and your spirit would embolden our faith. Lord, help us to see Christ's heart for his disciples. Help us to see, Lord, the desperate lengths he goes to show his disciples how much he cares for them and how much he will do to preserve them. Lord, we pray your blessing on our worship now. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Amen.
Let's stand to sing.